February the 18th, 2013, about the uh, prosecution of Aaron Schwartz, uh, who was prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts for allegedly breaking into the computer networks at MIT and downloading without authorization thousands of academic articles from a, a subscri subscription service. He was charged with uh, crimes that would have carried a penalty of up to 35 years in prison and a million dollar fine. As I said, I wrote a letter asking about that prosecution and raising questions of prosecutorial zeal and I would say even misconduct. Have you looked into that particular matter and reached any conclusions? Yeah, let me first say that Mr. Schwartz's death was a tragedy. Uh, my, my sympathy goes out to his family uh, and to his friends, those who uh, were close to him. It's a, it's a terrible loss. He was obviously a very bright young man and had, uh, I think, a good future in front of him. Uh, an offer, a plea offer, was made to him of three months before the indictment. He, this case could have been resolved with a plea of three months. After he, um, the indictment, an offer was made that he could plead and serve four months. There was never an intention for him to go to jail uh, for longer than a three, four, potentially five month range. That was what the government said specifically to um, uh, Mr. Swartz. Those, uh, those uh, offers were rejected. Well, I would suggest to you, if you're an individual American citizen uh, and you're looking at criminal charges being brought by the United States government with all of the vast resources available to the government, uh, it strikes me as uh, disproportionate and uh, one that is basically uh, being used inappropriately to try to bully uh, someone into pleading guilty to something that strikes me as rather, uh, rather minor. Um, but uh, I would appreciate it if you would... Uh <laughs> nice. nice. <laughs> all right. Hey, I'm here all week. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Club Manifesto. Uh, we're back. Great to be back. Uh, Joe and So says always. Uh, we've got good material for the show today. We're we're reading the Gorilla Open Access Manifesto. Uh, which was written by uh, the famed programmer and uh, hacktivist Aaron Swartz. I think I'm saying that right. Um, you may actually know of, of Swartz already uh, because of a, a pretty remarkable legal case in which he was uh, prosecuted by, by Barack Obama's Justice Department. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the show. But the manifesto essentially advocates for a world free of gatekeeping in the uh, the world of scientific research and other scholarly work uh, uh basically ideas that no one should have to pay to access uh, databases of of academic work uh, everything ought to be free um and anyway it, it ended up being a uh the subject of of some direct action that he took uh that, that makes makes his biography uh pretty interesting um so we are today fortunate to to be joined by a correspondent uh, from our um, Italian bureau. Yes. He's our uh, foreign correspondent. Indeed, yeah. John. Uh, welcome <laughs> to Club Manifesto. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, long time listener, first time caller. Uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna as as a long time listener, you know then that we're gonna ask you the same brilliant question that we ask every guest 
on Club Manifesto. Uh, and that is why, John, did you find this particular manifesto, the Gorilla Open Access Manifesto, to be uh, interesting, worthy of discussion, anything that drew you to Aaron Swartz? Well, I mean, I've been on the the lookout for a manifesto to to you know hype my cred and get on the show with you guys for a while, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and most of them are either too long or involved in things that don't interest me at all. Um, and I was watching something on YouTube, and there was a mention of Aaron Schwartz. And I remembered vaguely when, you know, uh, I guess probably when he killed himself. I don't think I had heard about it before he killed himself. Um, I don't know. Um, and kind of went back and read the manifesto, it being like a massive page. Um, mm. It was a pretty, pretty quick read. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he delves into some interesting things about... Um, morality and uh kind of an anti-authoritarian string uh of thought that uh is personally interesting to me so i shot it over to sos and said hey let me let me talk to the people yeah mm -hmm. after after a thorough vetting process there were uh five <laughs> clearance uh, levels that john had to go through yeah he, uh, he made it he passed all of them <laughs> and made it to the show yeah, I, I have a pretty similar. I had a pretty similar experience. I think I learned. I I remember certainly hearing about him when he died. I don't know if I really knew about him before that. Uh, but he was he was really kind of celebrated immediately after he died as as a bit of a a martyr. Um, in mm -hmm. a way that in a way that I think especially people who uh, commit suicide are are not often uh, celebrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, unless uh, you self immolate. Generally, martyrdom yeah. <laughs> isn't kind of a thing you get credited with. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, you get so let's... credited with uh, being crazy usually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, something, something to that effect. Uh, well, let's let's uh, hop right in then to the uh, to the biography of of Aaron Swartz. Uh, he was born November eighth, nineteen eighty six, in Highland Park, Illinois. So really not. Not too far from where uh, I am sitting at the moment here in Chicago. Um, his father, uh, Robert Swartz, a little kind of an interesting uh, story here, was the head of a computer software company called the Mark Williams Company. But that company was actually founded by uh, Aaron Swartz's grandpa uh, to produce a soft drink called Dr. Enough. I don't know if you've ever, either of you guys have ever had Dr. Enough. I never uh, saw it. It's sort of Sounds a like bad branding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I've, I've had enough. Uh, but it was similar to Mountain Dew and marketed as a cure for hangovers. So that's the original company. Then uh, Aaron Swartz's dad comes in behind him, says, uh, "Let's move away from soft drinks, move towards software." Uh, and then you know, I guess Aaron Swartz kind of was, continued was that in, how that, we... in that vein. Do you think that's how we pitched it? Let's move away from soft drinks and into software. The, the, uh, <laughs> that's a good line, Joe. Yeah, it is a pretty good line. To be honest, one that I did not process until I uh, read it just now. 
Sosa's punny brain just went to action on that one. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I pounced on. I'm, I mean, you, I'm sold. You know, I would have, <laughs> I would have made the investment. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's really no other clear connection that I can, I can suss out. So, uh, but one way or the other, you know, I, I figure that's also another way of saying that uh, Aaron Swartz probably came from at least a little bit of money. His grandpa's got a, a soft drink company. His dad's running a, a software thing. Um, and so well, he's probably relatively uh, privileged money-wise, I would think. Well, he came from money, but he was he you know a bit of a wild child at the mm-hmm. tender age of twelve in nineteen ninety-nine. Aaron created a website, the Info Network, a user-generated encyclopedia. Does that sound familiar? There, mm-hmm. the wa- the site won the Ars Digita Prize, which is given to young people who create quote useful, educational, and cooperative non-commercial websites. Uh, so it looks like he started his own version of Wikipedia. From a young age, he had those like open information values that that he really held on to until later life. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2005, he enrolled at Stanford, but he only stayed for a year. And uh, in 2005, he helped co-found a web service called Infogami, which later became Reddit. He's credited as a co-founder of Reddit, in fact. He studied programming and held various programming jobs in his 20s, but ultimately found corporate life to be unfulfilling. A big surprise there. It's, so, It's, it's kind of interesting, you know, he... Uh, we're, what we're going to talk about is how he was essentially threatened with jail time for uh, trying to release a whole bunch of academic articles. But he himself, like, he goes to, he gets into Stanford, goes there for the year, and then drops out, to my understanding, because he's more or less bored. He doesn't really find it to be that, uh, like, helpful or useful. Uh, but then he ends up, you know, really finding, I guess, a lot of value in other people's academic uh, work. You know what I mean? There's like, mm, mm. I, I, I guess I can understand in, a, in a, the various reasons why people are frustrated by uh, higher education and why they might not uh, stick it out. But uh, sometimes I, I guess it suggests to me maybe a, a little bit of a lack of curiosity about certain things. Uh but then mm. his clearly his uh, his work later on suggests that he really is uh, deeply curious about uh, about what what is uh, available in, in scientific research, etc. Yeah, I wonder if it was like the culture of uh, the, the Ivy Leagues or like Stanford or you know elite mm-hmm. uh, uh, private schools. Uh, maybe that was part of what it was. Um, who knows? I mean, but yeah, school wasn't his thing. For being a programmer, like the f- few interviews I've watched of him, he he does kind of try to, he seems to have a wider, he picks up on like currents that are outside of the programming sphere or he like references things from outside the programming sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I don't, I'm not, I don't know him obviously, but I don't think that necessarily it's like a lack of curiosity um, just based on hearing him, like he doesn't just, he'd never seem to just repeat the same old, I'm going to save the world with my brilliant invention um, mm-hmm. kind of tech bro thing. Um, maybe I'm giving him too much grace, but it seemed like he, 
curiosity i don't think was necessarily a something that was not in him um but you know yeah he's certainly know. not the uh let's make a billion dollars and save the world kind of tech mm. bro you know he's <laughs> he's into not making money which makes him unique <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah for sure um so i mean because so we're, we're going to talk about this he uh he did focus a little less on making money and more on what's essentially like a political activism uh Mm. both both before and after he wrote this manifesto he was pretty politically active in a variety of ways he he tried to get on to uh the wikimedia foundation uh its board of trustees uh failed i guess in his in his effort to, to do that but he tried that in 2006 when he would have been i guess about 20 years old uh, two years later, he founded a uh, website called Watchdog.net, uh, which described itself as, quote, the good government site with teeth. Um, uh, the mission there was to aggregate and visualize data about politicians. I think, you know, there are a handful of websites now that, like, track uh, donations uh, to political figures. I assume that it was probably something similar to that. Yeah, and it was in 2008 uh, that he downloaded 2.7 million federal court documents stored in the public access to court electronic records database managed by the Administrative Office of the United States Courts. PACER, as it's uh, known, it's uh, the acronym for the Public Access Court Electronic Records, to, to Court Electronic Records, uh, Pacer was charging eight cents per page for information uh, that that anyone who wanted to access it needed to access. Now that doesn't sound like much, one to eight cents per page, but just think of it: anyone who wants to access these federal, I guess, public documents needs to pay to access them. Uh, mm-hmm. People like uh, Swartz and. Carl uh, Malamud, who founded the nonprofit group uh, publicresource.org, contended that this information should be free because federal documents are not covered by copyright. That's the that's the logic behind it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what do you say, Joe? Is that a sound legal <laughs> argument? This isn't a copywritten material. Why the fuck should I pay to access it? Says, well, I- I will say that as a as a reporter, I used to use Pacer pretty regularly. I have not had to use it as much lately because it it just concerns federal court documents. But mm. uh, as a reporter, I'd use it all the time. And actually, uh, it is free, or it was free anyway when I was using it, as long as you didn't get up to like fifteen dollars every three months. Which so you figured eight cents a page. I was constantly like trying to. You, you had to be. I had to be really careful, like which, uh, which links I clicked, you know, because mm. you click a link not realizing that uh, behind it was like a four hundred page document, um, and then all of a sudden <laughs> you were like over your thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to me, the the argument, yeah, it's it's not covered. They're not covered by copyright. Uh, I mean. It would not make sense that that it, they could possibly be covered by copyright because the information in there is, uh, you know, mostly generated by non-governmental actors. So obviously, the federal government can't have a, a copyright over like uh, something that a like a defendant in a lawsuit says. Um, 
you know they're not they're not working for the government um but uh i mean obviously there is theoretically like proprietary information in there uh or sensitive information in lawsuits um but i think practically the issue is that it's like it's a, there's cost to maintaining the database and the government uh just has chosen to put that cost on the users but they obviously could just fund it the same way that we fund a library uh or or a national park or something um where where access is either free or it's like relatively low cost because it's subsidized um but isn't the wasn't his workaround to get all those documents because if you accessed it from public libraries there was no cost and well that that's the uh that's the jstor stuff i think you might be thinking of oh i thought it, it was, are you thinking about the pacer stuff too i'm, I'm thinking of the pacer thing because the jstor stuff he accessed through the mit uh mm -hmm. lab um but i'm pretty sure there is something about like accessing it from a public library you could get access to it free and then he wrote some weird script for his web browser to basically copy every link that he clicked on um, and get it all for free and then put it all up on a non-monetized site is at least how I remember the story going. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems that seems totally possible. That's basic. That, that's pretty similar to what he did with the JSTOR stuff. Uh, and there I know that. You know, there are certain people who have unlimited access to to Pacer. They don't have to pay. I mean, which is uh, kind of evidence, of course, that that could that could just be allowed for everyone. Um, and the, it's just a you know, I guess a, a policy. I I I will say I I think that a lot of that information should be. There's a lot of pretty important information in there that is is hidden, and the courts. You know, I think courts generally gain a lot of power, maintain a lot of power by operating largely in sort of secret. You know, there are like little elements of it that are publicly available. But the fact that so much of it is essentially impenetrable, uh, totally secret, uh, is exploited by a lot of people, a lot of actors within the judicial system to, mm. to maintain, maintain power. So, uh, mm. I, I mean, I'm not saying that's the only reason that they don't make this stuff publicly available, but as we will discuss, uh, you know, that w Swartz's theory is that the the people with power want to maintain power, and so they information is power, and so they keep information to themselves. And and in that general sense, it is true. Also, I think, kind of on on a simpler level. They don't. They don't make it freely accessible to the public because there's no pressure on them to do so. How many Aaron Schwartz, uh, Swartz, excuse me, how many Aaron Swartzes are there in the world actually demanding this stuff be made free and public? Uh, mm -hmm. So if like the public doesn't ask for it, it's you know these institutions will try to uh, you know get away with whatever they can because no one's no one's pounding at the at the at the door, you know. Yeah, I mean yeah. like court documents contain a lot of useful information but it's not exactly stimulating reading you know so yeah <laughs> well that that goes yeah for, you should that you should goes pay for me the, eight cents to read it <laughs> <laughs> i mean that that goes for the the subjects of pretty much everything that we're talking about today i mean the 
all these academic articles, you know, are, are not usually like a, a blast to sit down and read. Uh, so it is kind of funny that they're the ones that are lo- like hidden away, uh, you know, behind lock and key. Yeah, but the thing is, like, who, but the guy who does want to read them will use them in, in order to do something, right? Mm-hmm. To make a thing, to do a thing. And I think um, this is something, well, when we get to the manifesto, we'll talk about a little more. But I wish that element of Aaron Swartz's thinking got teased out a bit more in, in his manifesto. It, and, and it doesn't. You know, I think that's ultimately what he's going for. Like, okay, why have all this information publicly, readily available? No one's going to read it anyway. Yeah, but the three people who do might use it to invent a useful, helpful thing. And if information's out there, society becomes more dynamic, you know? Mm-hmm. And and if it's just hoarded away in, in these vaults uh, where the one guy who does want to read these court documents or these, like, scientific journals uh, d- can't, and uh, I think that's what's at stake here. You know, we live... Uh, uh, with all these like tech manifestos that we that we've read, they're they all lend themselves to capitalist critique, but they never quite go that far, right? Mm-hmm. Cap- capitalism is always thought to be like a very dynamic system, and I guess it is in a lot of ways. But once you start copywriting and hoarding information, you know it's by definition less dynamic, you know, because mm-hmm. people could access it and use it to create more things, and and they're not, but. Yeah, and there's no, I mean, no one. No one asked me. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, nobody asked me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's also a real fundamental fairness issue with the uh, court documents, in particular, because uh, they they're going to concern, for example, a lot of times criminal defendants, uh, etc., who they themselves or their families might not really have easy access to these documents either, because they're hidden away. In this uh, mm. in this database, that's besides the fact that it's it, it can get pretty expensive uh, to use it. It's also not not easy to use. Uh, it's hard to get a uh, an account. You have to inevitably like spend time on the phone uh, convincing someone that you are the person you say you are in order to get the account. So uh, it, it given that the documents can be incredibly important for certain people and they may not have easy access to them either um i think there's a i mean just an example of how important court documents are um like the panther 21 case in new york um one of the defendants of black panthers uh 21 of new york one of the defendants daruba bin bin wahad um in his in the litigation of his case he basically got a release of something like 30,000 pages of uh, FBI documents that basically blew the lid off of Cointelpro. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, like that was kind of the first major release that conclusively linked the FBI to disrupting all sorts of radical political action in the 60s, 70s. Um, so, like, I mean, there's definitely stuff in there that that at least shows a light on what's going on. Yeah, that you, you, get a, you get access to government records. Turns out the government's up to a bunch of shit they don't want you to know about. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. 
Yeah. So they're 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 like, let's put up an eight cent paywall, and <laughs> <laughs> that's all you need. No one will be the wiser. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, the, gov- <laughs> the government, um, so again, Swartz is involved was involved uh, in a number of kind of kind of conventional political governmental activities uh, in 2009. So this is when he'd be 23. Um, he helped launch something called the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. Not exactly a really remarkable name there, um, but it's a uh, it's a political action committee that actually still exists. Um, has been pretty closely associated with uh, Elizabeth Warren's political activities. Ooh, uh, radical! Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, its but, roots maybe were slightly. I mean, maybe not radical, but a little bit more to the left of than corporate lawyer elizabeth warren you know like. <laughs> yeah i think maybe originally but it seems like they've been associated with her for a while um but i mean i mean i think since like before he died even um he wrote he wrote in his blog uh quote i spend my days experimenting with new ways to get progressive policies enacted and progressive politicians elected unquote um so really the first activism event of his uh, career really was with this pack uh, where they delivered a bunch of uh, Honor Kennedy petition signatures uh, to Massachusetts legislators asking them to, uh, I guess, fulfill the last wish, allegedly, of Senator T- Ted Kennedy, uh, which was uh, a certain... Some kind of health care reform. I actually don't know the details on it, but some some type of health care reform he was arguing for or lobbying for. Mm. Yeah, Aaron Schwartz was like really trying to work within the system a lot to to enact change, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and probably met with a lot of frustrations. Like in uh, uh, on December twenty seventh, two thousand ten. He filed a Freedom of Information Act request to learn about the treatment of Chelsea Manning, the alleged source of military documents published by WikiLeaks. Swords' request was uh, for any records related to Manning uh, or her confinement in uh, Quantico Brig, a military prison in which Manning was held after she was alleged to have leaked hundreds of thousands of secret military records including some showing atrocities committed by the American military in Iraq. And um, so I think it's really interesting. He's trying to work within the system, but, you know, his interest in folks like Chelsea Manning and and what she did, uh, uh, sort of, he he sees that you can't, there's like really, really strict limits to, to working within within the confines of the system. And you got to, if you, especially when it comes to information, you gotta you gotta break rules because there's so much rules about controlling information. Mm-hmm. Who gets access to what? Uh, there's also like uh, something almost a little bit laughable about like filing a FOIA request asking the government to just tell on themselves about this uh, about their persecution of someone who who themselves leaked a bunch of information about war crimes that they're trying to hide. You know, it's like a, a, a snake eating its own tail here. Oh, but. Okay, but it's one of those things that might have worked. 
You know, yeah. like, fuck it. Maybe it'll work. <laughs> What's yeah. the worst that could happen? They'll say no? Okay, but maybe they're dumb enough. Uh, <laughs> I think the best case scenario is they say no and then you sue them and there's this protracted legal battle in which perhaps you're eventually able to force their, their hand, you know? And mm. I don't know I don't know if if that was ever... He, he, he did this as part of a... Uh, I believe it's called muckrock.com, one of a whole bunch of different like uh, projects he was associated with in one way or the other. And I don't know if that was the plan or if they maybe did eventually try to file a, a lawsuit. Um, I did think it was interesting that in that FOIA request, he actually asks for the fees to be waived. Um, <laughs> like, uh, you know, if appropriate fees be waived, as I believe this request is in the public interest, the requested documents will be made available to the general public free of charge as part of the information or the public information service at muckrock.com. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a uh, foreshadowing what he what he is getting into uh, with the the what what allegedly uh, eventually lands him in legal trouble uh, where he's. He's trying to get shit for free, you know. He he wants everything to <laughs> yeah. be wants everything to be free, and uh, turns out, uh, you know, that creates some tension, uh, especially with when the federal government's involved. Yeah, it, it seems like if there's anything manifesto writers, if all we read a lot of different manifestos for this show, but what they all have in common is their very principled and very annoying, you know, in, in their <laughs> consistency. <laughs> They're just like, yeah, I want it for, I want every information piece of information for free. That, I mean, that's like his identity. That's his mm -hmm. thing. I think you have to be an idealist to write a manifesto, like in some way or form, right? Like you have to place value in your own like homebrewed ideas to be able to put them to pen and paper and disseminate those ideas uh, to others, like it's a certain egotistical, but ultimately idealistic kind of thing behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and that kind of and that's the and that's the appeal of Swartz. He's such an idealistic guy. Uh, his actions kind of uh, speak it, you know, for themselves, and his uh, level of political activism and activity is pretty impressive and. John, I, uh, I was wondering, did you know about this activism before you read his manifesto, uh, or uh, this is like a like, or, or or is this something that you uh, discovered about him as you were uh, kind of you know getting more interested reading stuff about him online? Um, and this is an open-ended question to both of you, Joe and John. Are uh, uh, Swartz's personality and actions more important than his ideas? Because his ideas aren't really novel, you know? Uh, uh, but uh, he, as a figure, is novel. More novel than the stuff that he's... He's not the only guy out there saying everyone should have access to information, you know? Right. Is I he mean, more important than his ideas? I, I didn't know about any of his political activities i didn't like i just basically all i remember is hearing his name and remembering there was something about jstor and then hearing that he died like that's mm -hmm. basically all i think i knew about him before um i rediscovered the manifesto i don't know two weeks ago three weeks ago whatever it was mm -hmm. um and i mean 
like you said, his ideas definitely aren't novel. Like you can go back to St. Thomas Aquinas uh, talking about, you know, just laws um, are the only laws you need to follow or unjust laws you have no responsibility to follow. Like these ideas are very old and steeped in many traditions. Um, Thomas Aquinas, so, the patron saint of the open access movement. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, or we could go to Martin Luther King, who also had similar uh, beliefs about uh, moral obligations to not follow unjust laws. Um, mm. Right. So, like, um, definitely his ideas writ large were not novel, but uh, I do think. I mean, it kind of ties back into the GNU manifesto, right? This open source software, um, you know, uh, intellectual property, um, this kind of thing. These these fights aren't new. There's been lots of people arguing for them. But I think Schwartz was somebody who understood how much reach the Internet would have. I think maybe he put too much faith in its ability to be a tool for democratic uh power um i think that goes back to his idealism um but um i definitely think his actions you know kind of put put you know his money where his mouth is you know he kind of like you said he was born in a fairly comfortable place you know it wasn't like he was hard up for money and you know he helped co-found reddit or whatever you know like he could he could have been wealthy from his coding kind of stuff on his own, but rather than, you know, becoming Bezos, he decided to steal a bunch of documents from JSTOR and mm -hmm. ultimately kill himself. So like his ideas are definitely um, not novel, but I do think he kind of put a good emphasis uh, on them. And I think his actions kind of backed up his ideas. Yeah, he definitely he definitely had guts, but the and the other thing that that he had um, that like uh, you know Thomas Aquinas probably didn't have was like the ability to to a even at age like twenty two or twenty three or whatever uh, write a code that like outsmarted the uh, technicians at JSTOR and and MIT and like uh, I mean he 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 was obviously like very gifted at the like the thing that he decided to to do uh so in that way like his actions like that's where to me i guess him as a individual is kind of important he was able to uh to do something that, that most people would not be able to in part because of his his uh his gifts um you know in, intellectually or whatever um but but yeah his ideas are not not totally you know brand new obviously and they're not they're not necessarily all that different from a lot of uh a lot of other kind of techie shit that we've discussed on this very podcast and and like it seems like the world of of tech of silicon valley is the wild west the new frontier where people like swartz or um uh what was the name of the guy who wrote the gnu manifesto i'm sorry God damn. Yeah, I, I can't I can't remember off the top of my head. 
Yeah, we're really dedicated to this, uh, to, to the manifestos we made. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a while, you know. That like guy, yeah. You remember the name of the manifesto, see? That's, yeah. that's what matters, that's right. The, um, I, remember, the, I remember that he uh, like I, I was maybe alleged to have been like a smelly guy and he would kind of harass women in his office. That's what I, yeah. I, I don't remember his name. Yeah, and he wouldn't trim his nails. Like, yeah. I remember everything about him except his name. Yeah. But, like, where they can, like, uh, where people like him and Aaron Swartz can rediscover these ideas. You know, these ideas that maybe aren't new in history, but show how different historical moments give rise to the same sentiments in people. You know, it's like... Um, and, and the internet was a new thing and it did allow, it was like a historical moment that allowed for people to imagine a new kind of world, you know, in order to do that kind of imagining, you need certain historical conditions there. And the internet, the early days of the internet provided that. And, you know, all those dreams, just like every other dream of a, of a socialist utopia, even if they didn't use the word socialism, you know, a socialist like a communitarian where we're all sharing something utopia, it got completely dashed by, you know, uh, capital and mm-hmm. um, and made useful by capital, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, and, and, and it doesn't leave a lot of room for people like Swartz or the Ghanaian I mean. Guy. I'm just spitballing here, but like perhaps the fact that he used so many kind of non-novel or like oft-repeated uh, like turns of phrase in the actual manifesto um, is kind of a like a yeah, it's full of cliches. <laughs> well, it's like it, it's like it's like it relates to him trying to liberate this idea, the this information, right? Because yeah. He's trying to put a new face on this, on these old ideas, um, because these ideas spoke to him in a certain way. And mm-hmm. if you liberate all this information, that information might speak to countless numbers of people in countless different ways. And that information can be used to do, you know, theoretically a bunch of good shit or bad shit. But, you know progress or change or whatever bring more into the ether tell me good people what do you what do you want to know tell me good people how should it how should it should it go children as they dance around and I see their feet they barely touch the ground and they hear and learn the chorus of the song and they bring their friends to softly sing along it's a plain yeah so so he writes this manifesto uh I mean he's only like 21 22 years old uh he writes it in 2008 um and it was i guess it was pretty somewhat widely circulated uh at the time although you know as we've all talked about i don't think any of us would it would not have been on our radar uh at we're not that the moment. most tech involved folk you know yeah yeah despite the the fact that we've probably done like three or four 
tech manifestos <laughs> on this on this podcast. It's like a it's a, a virus um, that's just chasing us around. Um, but eventually, uh, besides you know circulating to interested readers, it would also come to the attention of the federal government, which would uh, I believe actually use the manifesto as evidence against uh, Swartz in what became a pretty serious criminal case. And we'll talk about that. I'll talk about that for just a minute here. Um, I'm going to try not to get too far into the weeds. Uh, but it's it's really interesting and significant. I think like it's uh, um, this is as interesting as the manifesto, you know, the, yeah, what happened it, to him as a result of the manifesto. This is as good as it gets. We're at this part yeah. of the podcast. This is as good as it gets. And then it'll probably be downhill after this. Oh, um, yeah. Get ready uh, to change the channel, folks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so the allegations in this case are that r- late 2010, early 2011, uh, so again, that's, by my calculations, that puts him at 24, 25 years old. Um, he allegedly accessed JSTOR, uh, and I... I think a lot of people probably know what JSTOR is, but it's basically a, a big collection of academic articles. Uh, any anybody's ever had to write a research paper, you know, pretty good chance you maybe stumbled on JSTOR. Um, but he he used access to JSTOR that was available at MIT to anyone, like any any person off the street could walk in and use JSTOR. He managed to use it to download allegedly 4.8 million documents off of the uh, off the database uh, to a whole bunch of external hard drives. I think this is all according to what became a felony indictment issued against him in July of 2011. Um, uh, allegedly, this all occurred over a course of months. Uh, he he essentially was like creeping into a uh, like a a supply closet or something where he had hidden a laptop that he had loaded up with all of this, like this code that was uh, managing to get around the, the ways that JSTOR and also MIT would, would typically keep people from doing this type of mass downloading. Um, you're not, you know, you were not supposed to be downloading this much shit. You're allowed to download some, but not, uh, not 4.8 million. Um, so he, he got a bunch of academic articles, editorials, news pieces, and then other miscellaneous documents. I'm sure it was kind of scattershot how he was, uh, you know, he was taking anything he could get, it seems like. Um, yeah, after like three documents, they're like, you've hit your daily limit. No, mm-hmm. you know, no more <laughs> downloads well, for eight today. Eight a page. I mean, he's got a, <laughs> he's got a nice chunk, right? And yeah. JSTOR ain't that cheap. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, so, yeah, he used some pretty sophisticated coding techniques to get around that. Um, but he was actually eventually caught, I think, on video sneaking into this supply closet uh and there's like a some an element of the indictment where they discuss him like using his bike helmet uh to try to shield his face or something and he's like looking through the holes in the bike helmet as he's opening anyway there's uh, there's some uh sounds like something i would have done yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. cyclists doing cool this will work <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I can't ride a bike, but I mean in theory, you know, if uh, I could. <laughs> but you I do would have done that. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's because I fall down often. I need uh, I need <laughs> so protective gear. The the indictment also includes what you might call like a justification for why the federal government is so concerned about this and why they end up uh, prosecuting him for it. Um, the indictment states, "Quote: J Store has invested millions of dollars in obtaining and digitizing the journal articles that it makes available as part of its service." And it says that this service is important to universities and research institutions because uh, without these digitized archives, it would be very expensive to maintain like these comprehensive collections of academic research. So that's that's the allegation that it, that essentially it's uh, you're 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 screwing it up for everybody else because otherwise JSTOR is not going to be able to make money, and if they can't make money, then they're not going to be able to maintain this digital collect. You know, uh, like this the standard shit that. The government does in all kinds of legal cases where they try to pretend like they understand the economics of some uh, system that they obviously have no specific but, knowledge of. Am I wrong in thinking that all these academic articles that are at least written in Schwartz's contemporary time are already digitized? It's not like these people are typing these things up on typewriters, <laughs> right? Like they're already mm -hmm. in ones and zeros. So like maintaining the server okay and paying for the access to the to the actual article okay but the digitizing just seems like this big hocus pocus word to like make it sound more complicated than it is like mm -hmm. nobody's typewriting their research papers up yeah mm. no that i mean that's that seems correct i'm sure that there's there's obviously got to be some cost to like maintaining the database and right uh, yeah to... I, I get that I, and I, I'm sure that that hey, is Store, true in some Jay Store needs to wet its beak. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean, Joe? Jay Store needs to get his. Mm -hmm. uh, that's all. That's all we're saying. I mean, mm -hmm. so says the Italian correspondent. I think that was my line that you. Just oh stole. shit! Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm not that's Italian, more, so maybe that's more Italian American. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if. Uh, hey. Uh, hey. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so what happens is this indictment charges Swartz with uh, wire fraud, computer fraud, unlawfully obtaining information from a protected computer, uh, and recklessly damaging a protected computer. And that, so that's the original indictment. And then later, uh, uh, about a year after that, federal prosecutors filed a superseding indictment adding nine more uh, felony counts, which increased the possible... Uh, criminal exposure here to 50 years in in a federal prison um, or and one million dollars uh, in fines so uh, obviously I mean we're we're talking about a guy who just downloaded a bunch of shit uh, I didn't yeah. even just didn't even distribute it actually just so, so just this... downloaded it yeah this and and this is why it's like really worth going into the details of the case because you see what he did and then the way he's treated for it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, uh, really just, like, terrorized by the government for downloading a bunch of stuff. Just hounded and terrorized uh, uh, by, and, you know, through the legal system uh, as, a, as a result of, you know, what many would call a victimless crime. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, like, even the academics who wrote those things didn't, as far as I know, really give a shit. Nobody's mm. like, you know, oh, fuck, I wrote an article, you shouldn't access it, and let... 
Uh, well, they you know already I mean? got like, their who, money from JSTOR for it, right? Like, dude, they, they already, don't get money from. J- I don't think they get money from JSTOR. Well, the publisher like, who gets out, paid? Right? Who yeah. gets paid for writing academic articles? No, you know, they. It's part of like your reward for writing an academic article is tenure. You know, mm-hmm. it's not. It's not. Uh, that's how they get you. Right, <laughs> but like you, you look at like the government's case is basically that it's does economic harm. Right, and they hang fifty years on this dude. That's the or, case, but it's not actually harming anyone. No, know? no, but this is what I'm getting to is, yeah, their case basically alleges that he had the potential to do severe economic harm, mm-hmm. and this is taking place exactly what three years, two and a half years after a bunch of guys decided to sink the entire world economy. And mm-hmm. only one guy went to prison who was like a mid-level mm-hmm. functionary at one of the banks. Like, I mean, econo- potential economic harm versus <laughs> like, you know, actual epic economic harm to the entire world. Yeah, trillions um, of dollars and like, you know, <laughs> countless people's lives and jobs and yeah. You know, it's really no. We wouldn't no have quite comparison. as many homeless people on our streets today, if it weren't for that. You know, mm-hmm. but and whatever. There and again, like we're talking about a, a very attenuated relationship between, like, what Swartz was doing and like the this alleged economic harm. You know, uh, it the the only way you're you're looking at real harm. To even to JSTOR is if he manages to put that all up for free and then institutions stop using JSTOR because why, you know, we can just use Aaron Swartz's free database of stolen documents. You know, that doesn't really even make sense. Like, oh, MIT is right. now going to stop using JSTOR because we could just use Aaron Swartz's stolen documents. Like, I just don't see how that makes a ton of sense. The MIT was short-sighted in in jumping behind the federal government and trying to hang Aaron Schwartz because they could have saved the money for their JSTOR <laughs> membership, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they could have saved nine ninety nine a month or whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> so uh, as a window into uh, his kind of inflexible uh, disposition, um, there, there were plea negotiations with the prosecution or the prosecutors negotiating with Swartz and his attorneys and prosecutors offered Swartz uh, six months uh, in a low security prison if he pled guilty to what I guess were 13 federal crimes Um, and basically Swartz and his attorney rejected the deal said they you know even though going to trial means potentially facing 50 years uh, they turned down the offer of, of six months in a, in a low-security prison, um, which is a pretty... feels like a pretty gutsy move, especially when you're, like, 25 years old and uh, you, you know, theoretically have a lot, of, a lot of important shit that could be happening in your life in the next uh, 30 or 40, 50 years. Um, and you, you know, don't get me wrong, six months would be a pretty, pretty shitty situation, too. Uh, but... Six months, you know, you're out. You're still 25, 26 years old. Um, so, and a, he doesn't a, lose his ability to code, or like, it's yeah. not like you're a doctor or something where a felony, you know, erases your ability to do your job. I mean, 
but that kind of goes back to his idealism, right? Like, I'm not going to mm-hmm. let you hang me out for these things because I believe I'm right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, yeah. it, a lot of people did ultimately criticize the prosecution here uh, for, for being overzealous, um, especially, I think, after Swartz died. Um, uh, he So he dies by suicide four months after these new charges are added. So... Um, you know, I, I would imagine not too long after the, the negotiations, um, he dies by suicide. Um, I mean, he, in one way, I, I look at this and I'm thinking, okay, so he had six months in, in jail. He, uh, you know, he kills himself as uh, instead of taking six months in jail. Um, but in a way, he was, you know, he's basically faced with either he pleads guilty, he admits that what he did was wrong, even though. He believes he was 100% right. He believes the government's 100% wrong. I mean, he has to totally violate all of his ideals. Uh, or, you know, the alternative is this taking the chance and spending like, decades in a federal prison, which I, I can understand why that causes people to feel uh, pretty hopeless. Um, so, yeah, that, anyway, he, di- he dies by suicide in, I think it's 2011. On the, it's actually on the evening of uh, 2013. Oh, 2013. Uh, his girlfriend so. uh, found him dead in his Brooklyn apartment. No suicide note. Uh, Swartz's family and his partner created a memorial website on which they issued a statement saying he used his prodigious skills as a programmer and technologist not to enrich himself, but to make the internet and the world a fairer, better place. And uh, days before Swartz's funeral, Lawrence Lessig, an American legal scholar and political activist, eulogized his friend and sometimes client in an essay uh, titled Prosecutor as Bully. Uh, He decried the disproportionality of Swartz's prosecution uh, when he wrote, The question this government needs to answer is why it was so necessary that Swartz be labeled a felon. For in the 18 months of negotiations, that was what he was not willing to accept. So Swartz is a very principled guy, and he's willing to uh, uh, die for stuff. And I think someone like Swartz, you know, there's a self-destructive element in, in his actions, too. He, know, I mean, you know, hiding out in a, in a closet... Uh, uh, trying to get dirt on stuff. You you have this kind of you want to get caught kind of thing. Like, um, uh, uh, not not completely, but there's that. There's, you know, he always flirted with disaster. Certainly. Well, I'll say if you and, if you read the the indictment, it describes how like MIT and JSTOR keep shutting him down, and he keeps coming back for more. Like he knows he's getting caught. He knows he's not mm. not not necessarily that he he himself is going to be identified, but he knows that they're on to what he's doing, and he keeps pressing forward for months on end. Uh, you know, playing this kind of cat and mouse game. Yeah, and uh, and and that's his that's his proclivities, that's his personality, but it seems like his uh, personality is kind of used against him. Like, uh, it appears that Aaron Swartz's death suggests a tantalizing narrative, one in which a tortured programmer is hounded by the government until he kills himself out of despair and desperation. And and that's certainly what uh, Lawrence Lessig is suggesting here. And it's purely speculative, this narrative, but it kind of adds up. 
and and the whole situation, how it has to be speculative, uh, reminds me of um, Soviet dissidents who were, let's say, who had a penchant for drinking. There was a lot of speculation that the government, you know, uh, fed them alcohol <laughs> and mm-hmm. and kind of drove them into into you know a kind of death, uh, you know, until they actually died. There were a lot of um, sort of things like that happening in the in the Soviet Union. Um, so who were dri- people who were driven to suicide and accidental deaths themselves. Uh, it's just striking to me how, you know, that kind of dystopian reality that existed in the Soviet Union, there's a version of that in Aaron Swartz, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's, it's just the similarities are very striking. I mean, there's also a version in the United States when you look at MK Ultra, or even, you know, the feds bringing crack into inner cities in the U.S. I mean, like, it, let's not pretend this is just some Soviet plot. It's a tool that's been used, you know, for time immemorial to discredit mm. and destroy enemies through surreptitious mm. ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to introduce to to introduce like uh, uh, drugs and alcohol and stuff like that into into a situation to ruin it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, like we talked about earlier or before we started recording, Ted Kaczynski, by all accounts, was a mm. participant in MK Ultra experiments when he was young and in university. So, like, I mean. I'm not saying Ted Kaczynski was a a dissident or anything, but they're trying to learn how to control <laughs> people, and he just got caught up in the mix kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't want to go out on a limb and call Ted Kaczynski a dissident. You well, know? that's really... <laughs> he became a dissident as a result of... I'm not... like I, I, I don't know exactly the technicalities of his mathematical research, but I mean... Before his bad experience in university, he was kind of on like a, you know, one of those gilded paths of being, you know, he's like one of the youngest ever winners of, I I don't know if it's the Fields Medal or some other mathematical medal, like he was like a prodigy, you know, and then not to say he didn't have problems beforehand, but I, I doubt being dosed with large doses of acid, um, consistently helped <laughs> and and Didn't like hurt and like tortured via the uh sort of if i understand correctly kind of breaking him down by uh yeah you know essentially destroying his his ego via criticism and uh from from various governmental actors so Right, it wasn't the the good kind of psychedelic ego death. It was, you know, the forced ego death. It's not like, yay, I'm free. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't that version. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we might as well get into uh, the manifesto itself. Unless Sos, do you want to do you want to cover that other stuff, or should we just go straight? No, let's jump right. That's uh, uh, yeah. I was thinking the same thing. So you can. you can go ahead and read the, or well, uh, yeah, you can go ahead and read the first lines unless John wants to. Now, right, I, I don't uh, have it with me right now. Okay. All right. I'll read the first lines then. 
I'm glad you prepared for this uh, for this episode, John. It's, well, uh... I, I only have one device, and Ellie needs <laughs> needs the computer to be able to fall asleep watching Futurama. So, uh, um, well, that's I, I mean, the best reason I've ever heard to have two devices. <laughs> but uh, I'm just messing with you. Uh, so here's how it starts: Information is power, but like all power. There are those who want to keep it for themselves. Yeah, so this, so, this is kind of what I was... I mean, we, were, we mm-hmm. kind of referred to it earlier. Um, but his... I, I think this is, like, really not exactly the most... There's not the strongest claim in my mind. Uh, like, I, I, obviously, I, I, it's not that I disagree that information is power. Um, but I don't know that the problem is that powerful people really want to hoard all the knowledge about scientific research um the problem is that there's like a profit motive that in our system that requires all things even this like universally useful information to be turned into a uh commodity that's traded for you know financial benefit Mm. yeah it's a thing that becomes coveted when it enters a, a this is what i mean like these a lot of what people like aaron schwartz are saying have the potential to be like systemic in their criticism, but they never quite get to that, to that level, but he's intuiting it, you know, Mm -hmm. he's, he's not far. And, and that kind of beginning information is power kind of reminds me of like a high school essay, you know, since the beginning of time, there's been the battle of the sexes, you know? But he dropped out of college after one year, so, you know, he didn't he didn't get to polish those writing skills like that. You, yeah, uh. That is true. Okay, I'm not, yeah, it's, uh, he didn't, he, he wouldn't have passed writing 101 maybe, but it's that, it's not that he's wrong, it's it's just that, you know, there, it's not, uh, it's it's a kind of um, it's a very general statement, you know. To me, that line, like as as like platitudy as it is, I don't platitudinal. I don't know how you say that. Um, as like common wisdom as that is, like, and while it, it it does it does speak to truth, which is why it's such a like a throwaway line, right? Like everybody can see at least a kernel of truth in that, but. Like while he focused mostly on, I guess the the federal um, documents, and then if what eventually did him in was the academic journals, you can see how this is like inevitably pointing towards copyright, and mm-hmm. you know, um, and that I think is where a lot of this, especially you know, pharmaceuticals or military weaponry or whatever, any of these more dangerous technologies or profitable technologies or both. Um, that's where I think the, the, like the academic research stuff is large is generally non commodified when it's just at that base academic, uh, level. Yeah. All that research ends up getting funneled into commodifiable technologies and processes. But I think that the, the door that, this manifesto opens just with that line um, is kind of like the power of it, even though it's just this general platitude. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's, he, he does, he is a good writer in that he, he, he says, he says what he means. He says it pretty directly. um, Even if it's not necessarily the, uh, 
uh, like the most inventive wording. Uh, he he is direct and and you know where he's going, which is yeah, like you're saying, it's gonna the copyright, etc. Um, so he goes on uh, the world's entire scientific and cultural heritage, published over centuries in books and journals is increasingly being digitized and locked up by a handful of private corporations. Want to read the papers featuring the most famous results of the sciences? You'll need to send enormous amounts to publishers like Reed Elsevier, which I don't I, I don't know what the hell Reed Elsevier is, but may, uh, maybe demonstrates my lack of familiarity I think that's with like the sciences. like game store, maybe. Okay. Mm. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I think that's a that's a fair that's a fair uh, guess. Guess there. <laughs> he goes on to say there are those struggling to change this. The open access movement has fought valiantly to ensure that scientists do not sign their copyrights away, but instead ensure their work is published on the internet under terms that allow everyone to access it. This raises a lot of questions for me. Like, what were the details? He was thinking of, like, to use to approach these scientists. Do you contact universities or companies that the scientists worked for? Or do you get in touch with them directly? Uh, were they breaching any kind of contract by uh, asking them to publish work on the internet? Even if the scientists wanted to, maybe they have an agreement with the university or company that they can't. Um, mm. And what kind of guarantees could someone like Swartz offer scientists if they did choose to follow him? You know, like, I, I, I'm just, like, curious about the details there. Like, it is idealistic and I'm with him, but I'm like, okay, how are you, how are you going to do this? How are you going to get people to actually come on board? Um, it's just interesting. It's just interesting for a guy to come out of the blue and say, like, yeah, break break some laws for me because <laughs> it's the right thing to do. And you're like, all right, you know, <laughs> let's see where this goes. Either break, uh, some, either break some laws or very, very likely, I would imagine, take like accept positions with less uh, access to money and uh, mm. resources. Just I mean, just a guess that if you're if you're saying that I, the way that we're going to publish this is uh some way some open access thing um you know basically breaking with with the typical way that this is done uh i'm just guessing that it it, it would certainly cause problems for those scientists like that it would be hard to find a whole ton of them like every you'd have to have a critical mass of everyone doing that to really make uh right or, or a lot of people doing it to really make any significant change and i don't know how you how that would work yeah, but I, yeah. i'm not i'm also not that familiar with the open access movement so mm. i mean like i think that's the the why the the name of the manifesto is guerrilla open access because the open access movement had been going on before aaron schwartz um um and like but it was especially one of the main proponents of open access is a guy named Peter Sauber. And he argued that in order for it to be functional, it had to be voluntary and to operate within legal limits. Right. Mm -hmm. And by throwing in that, that great word gorilla, he's kind of, you know, 
hearkening back to this direct action, this call to action to kind of like rise up and uh, and to do things in accordance with the higher law or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for our listeners, guerrilla as in freedom fighter, not the ape. <laughs> you know, just uh, just to let you know, it's not guerrilla mindset over here. <laughs> guerrilla mindset. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. I'm I'm glad you clarified that. So, so I'd not even yeah. uh, contemplated that. Uh, well, so but there is also uh, a kind of a, an even simpler problem with relying on the open access uh, movement here, and and what Swartz says next is. Even under the best scenarios, their work, and he's again talking about open access movement, their work will only apply to things published in the future. Everything up until now will have been lost. That is too high a price to pay. Forcing academics to pay money to read the work of their colleagues, scanning entire libraries but only allowing the folks at Google to read them, providing scientific articles to those at elite universities in the first world, but not the children in the global south. It's outrageous and unacceptable. So, uh, all right, Aaron. No children anywhere in the world are going to be reading JSTOR articles. Let's just. Be I clear. mean, he was though, right? Like, I mean, that's true. Yeah, he was I mean, the twelve-year-old we who invented Wikipedia. That's true. Just because we were doesn't mean he, there aren't some. You know, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and and uh, obviously, I think what he's actually saying is that uh there would there would be uh benefit i think he's getting at this idea that that there are benefits to any society that has access to all this scientific research and so if you hoard it all in the first world uh as he calls it then the the global south as he's saying um yeah is, is going to suffer including of course the children um so uh so remember the children uh, yeah yeah you don't want to forget about them don't forget about the children Everything builds on something else. There's no completely new creative thing, if only because if you wrote something completely new, nobody would understand it. I mean, we all have to use words that were developed by someone else, we use ideas that were developed by someone else. Everything is this process of pulling things together and recombining them. This notion that we become a permission-asking society, that every time you do something, you have to ask permission. I mean, that's, you know, the, that's basically against the freedom culture we have here. That's the opposite of a free country. The idea in America is, you know, unless it's specifically outlawed, you get to do it. The idea of copyright laws, these people want to propose it is, unless you specifically get permission, you just can't say it. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's, I think that's a pretty compelling point. That's probably the part of the manifesto that, I, like, st- struck me uh, the most. And I don't know that I've really ever heard it all that well addressed by academics, like the moral justification for effectively hoarding like this recorded research in what ends up being the wealthiest parts of the world. Um, I mean, I understand like the pragmatic issue with, you know, maintaining these databases and there's resources required. uh, But if this information is really as valuable as you know often scientists would have you believe then and, and other researchers would have you believe then it do, there is like a moral problem with uh 
keeping it, especially in just areas with a lot of wealth. Mm-hmm. And I think any researcher or academic would sympathize with... I think 99% of people would sympathize with mm-hmm. what Aaron Swartz is saying. You know, there's like... Everyone would agree with this shit, but it only benefits like five people to hoard information. So that's how the world works, because that those five people have all the power. And, mm-hmm. I mean, not literally five, but a handful. But this is... Uh, I think anyone who's actually doing the work of publishing material they wish it was freely accessible and everyone would read it they would become you know even more heavily cited and and well known it's uh, what the hell's the use to the academic to keep their information stored in jstor as well the, the none of the scientists benefit uh, from right this. but i mean you have to think of like the the divisions within academia right like morality is pretty much exclusively discussed in philosophy departments and maybe some legal departments but like you know there you get one class on like morality when you do like biological research but then you go cutting into monkeys and you know yeah, doing injecting a hundred of- mice with a disease you know like <laughs> the uk just brought back uh cosmetic testing on animals after having banned it for a number of years they decided no it's okay we need to we need to start putting lipsticks on pigs more often because that really (laughs) made our cosmetics better you know like Mm. so like i think that like in the spirit of this this manifesto like the breaking down of walls i think there's like a a very important aspect to him bringing morality into it and kind of shining a light on the fact that that question of the morality of keeping these these documents locked behind a paywall um is one that is not discussed in like larger larger or more powerful segments yeah speaking of the morality like there's so much Swartz could have said because i uh, about about that like i feel like he's kind of teasing us here only giving us little I mean, it's a very short manifesto, um, but um, he's he's not giving us much of like what, a, as I said earlier, what a what kind of world we would be living in if information was freely accessible, right? Like, okay, why do this? Um, he could say things like drugs will be produced cheaply, uh, uh, and you know, just like they wanted to do with COVID, where uh, after, if you remember, a few months into the COVID pandemic. Once, you know, it was clear the global south uh, uh, and, and like, basically non-Western countries weren't really going to get access to the drugs all that quickly, if at all. Uh, there was a desire to release the formula to to different parts of the world that could be mm-hmm. making the COVID vaccine quickly and cheaply, but they didn't do that. You know, that became news for a moment. That is one positive, not just like the COVID vaccine, but anything, insulin for people who have to use it for diabetes, like any drug could be made better, could be made cheaper rather, um, if information was more freely accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, these kinds of things are the, that's why it's moral to do this. It's not just right to release information. There's like good results. Um, So... I guess that's the thing with Aaron Swartz. He 
he has a moral impulse. He has good moral instincts. Uh, that hoarding information for profit is wrong. Just, just that's all you need to know. And the details are not that important. So being like this kind of free access absolutist is uh, kind of, I think, right up your guys' alley. Uh, uh, that kind of like, it's a, it's a good kind of absolutism, you know? A free speech absolutist, one would say. I it, don't know. Well, it's like, I mean, it's, it's not exactly, I mean, it, the problems with free speech absolutism, I don't think are quite as, as present with this type of open access absolutism. Uh, like the the benefits, you know, for example, of a certain kind of open access absolutism, as you're saying, uh, you, you can imagine if you did not have copyrights uh, on certain medication, et cetera, um, that there would be massive benefits and the downsides would be it's you know it seems like largely that uh, a handful of assholes would like not make as much money uh, and so I I think there I mean I guess there are there there is a an there's there's some limit there right I mean you don't it's like you don't necessarily uh, want like every single every person's like cell phone to be openly accessible to every other person you know uh, there's like, there's, there's gotta be some limits to what, what we all have access to, uh, in terms of information, but, uh, I don't, oh, it's, suddenly the open access movement has hit its limit when it comes to your cell phone, Joe. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Uh, we don't all get to have what we want. I swear. Well, I, I was trying to, trying to figure out a way to, uh, mel meld the free speech absolutism with this, you know, cause there's like a child porn argument that you start to get mm. into there. And like, mm. so I mean that there's something like similar to that with like allowing, uh, people's personal information to be uh, to be released. Like not everything <laughs> needs to be reproduced and knowable and, and recorded. Uh, but I see. Uh, that, I think I that's, that's why he kind of frames it in this like academic research thing. Like mm -hmm. I think hmm. it, within these rel or within that like confinement, he doesn't even mention copyright. Right? Like that's somewhere my brain takes it to logically but mm -hmm. um i think that even if you're talking about you know uh nuclear reactor research or you know weird gene therapy research these things that could be dangerous in the wrong hands like there's a certain level of technological uh sophistication and like access to capital and all this other things that are necessary before that information is that is dangerous and you know whereas you know kitty porn and you know if you open it up to just complete open access uh personal information uh mm. that kind of opens some cans of worms so I, I think there might be a little bit more kind of forethought in him using these big ideas, but constraining it to this one um, segment of information writ large. I think there's also something to be said for he doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't have this positive vision necessarily like you're talking about. So, but 
but in doing that, he he keeps his like I guess you are you would theoretically draw in uh, perhaps more uh, supporters, I guess, or, or at least you you foreclose the possibility of turning off people who. Uh, for whatever reason, don't like that vision uh, that that's offered. You know, one of like free healthcare, for example. Uh, as much as that, like, I, I would guess to all three of us, uh, seems like a universally positive idea. If you put that into a manifesto, you are uh, at least these days you would turn off uh, uh, quite a quite a number of people who don't who don't believe that that uh, vision is really uh, fits with with their their idea of a good world so right he's keeping it more uh like there's less ideology like explicit ideology and just appeal appeals to like vague morality that kind mm -hmm. of keeps it kind of open and without forcing the benefits of you know helping out third world children or global south children mm -hmm. you you don't exclude the people who think that those people deserve no help yeah hmm. yeah for sure well okay so i think we have uh, finally reached uh, my my favorite part of the episode uh, of each hmm. pretty much every episode of uh, club manifesto everyone's favorite part of uh, every yes uh, we get universally positive feedback uh <laughs> dumbasses advocate <laughs> dumbasses advocate oh yeah <laughs> uh so <laughs> There is uh, there is one person uh, you know who's entered public life in recent weeks whose actions I think have arguably fallen in line with what Swartz is suggesting here, and it's uh, you know on the on the line. But um, so this person is uh, Jack Tahera, I think is how the how you say his name. Uh, the he was the airman in the Massachusetts National Guard who is alleged to have uh, leaked a bunch of classified Pentagon documents about the war in Ukraine uh, to, like, his buddies in a, a Discord chat, and then somehow that stuff uh, found its way into other parts of social media, and now he's been arrested, um, charged with violating the Espionage Act. Um, so, uh, so, so, I don't know if you're... Uh, do you do you want to uh, do you want to defend his actions or do you want me to defend? I, his? I think you're the dumbass's advocate in this in this scenario. So you defend you defend Jack here. Okay. Our, our, you know <laughs> what we have here in Jack is a perfect dumbass, Joe. Yeah. Uh, for whom you can advocate your favorite mm -hmm. hobby, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, advocating for dumbasses. Can we just name the name of his Discord for everybody to to realize the depth of his dumbassery? Oh uh, yeah, what 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 was it? Oh shit, um, it's something I... racist, something like something beating <laughs> clan, like it, it's some like racist epithet. It's like I can't remember what yeah. it did. Yeah, uh, I I I mean, I think there's no question. Uh, <laughs> You got a hard time defending this guy for not being a bit of a dumbass. Uh, like he, he's twenty-one years old, and like, uh, and so that maybe get, gives him a little bit. You get a, give him a little bit of a break, but he has said a bunch of dumb shit in the in that Discord. There's no question about that. But in terms of just the action of like releasing a bunch of 
Pentagon documents, uh, yeah, uh, specifically I mean, about the war. Um, yeah, that kind of see here. Here we have Aaron Swartz's ideas in action. Yeah, okay, Aaron. Seems all well and good that you want open access to information, but here we have a dumbass and Jack releases government documents, you know, out into the world. Uh, I mean, uh, we have pandemonium here, Joe. What is this? We're, <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm going to have to join Joe on the side and, and try to defend this dumbass, despite my <laughs> But hang on, like dumbasses like Jack can just release nuclear codes to their Fortnite buddies because they want to impress them? I mean, I what mean, the fuck are we talking about here? Who's the dumbass? <laughs> the guy who released the codes or the people who gave a 21-year-old idiot uh, access to the codes? You know, I mean... Mm. And well, if you want to be, pass the dumbass buck, you're welcome to do so. <laughs> let's not be hyperbolic, because, I mean, all this information, or at least most of the information that he released, is not, like, very important to actual national security. It's basically just shedding light on how much the government has been lying to the people of the U.S., about what's going on in Ukraine, mm-hmm. and I mean, at least that's the the major part of the story, right? Like, there's some stuff about China and mm-hmm. you know whatever, but most of it was, uh, yeah, Ukraine's getting their shit pushed in, and they don't have <laughs> enough people or ammo, and things aren't looking good. While mm-hmm. at the same time, everybody with some stars on their shoulder comes out and says. Hey, Ukraine's doing great. They're pushing Russia back. Russia sucks. Look mm-hmm. at them. They're incompetent and committing war crimes. You know, like, yeah. so there, there's definitely some value to the documents that he's released. Well, and also, I think that inherent in Swartz's argument about open access is that you can't always know what the benefit of, it, of any particular document is going to be if you put it in the hands of like people who don't uh, have access to it and i think an example here uh when so in these documents that uh this dumbass uh released uh like they there was information in there about the fact that ukraine was wanting to get access to uh missiles that would allow them to target uh you know places in Russia, like long range rockets or missiles that would allow them to do that. Uh, and and so that that information ha- maybe, I mean, it was pertinent or in- interesting even at the time, but, you know, flash forward a few weeks and now we've got this like attack on the Kremlin where there's a drone that's like trying to blow up, uh, you know, where Vladimir Putin lives or whatever. Um, and and, and then you have uh, Zelensky saying, well, we don't, oh no, we don't give it, we, we don't do that kind of thing and we don't have any interest in it. We don't have any interest in, uh, in attacking Russia. We just have an interest in defending our own territory. I mean, because this dumbass released this information, we know that that's not really true. Like it, that they're, they do have an interest. Ukraine does have an interest in uh, attacking Russia as, as expressed in these uh 
documents that otherwise would have been classified. We wouldn't have the information. And, you know, I guess anybody with common sense could probably guess that uh, it's possible that Ukraine might want to attack the the country that has uh, invaded it. But uh, nevertheless, I do think there's value to... Uh, to these documents for that reason, and it's one that you could not have anticipated even necessarily when they were when they were released. So, you know, Tahera, a dumbass, but like not necessarily a dumbass in a, in a lots of ways. But I I do think his actions were uh, defensible. Uh, these <laughs> releasing those documents were probably some of the, the more defensible actions that guy's taken, <laughs> even though he was only doing it to show off how much like cachet or access he had right like i mean mm. like the guy clearly a dumbass i don't think there's any debate about that um but like also just talk like there's documents talking about how Zelensky's skimming too much off mm-hmm. of all the 80s getting and it's like we already knew Zelensky was a money launderer from the paradise papers and mm-hmm. Now we know that he's taking the billions of dollars that he's getting in military aid and, you know, probably pushing that to his offshore accounts. And so it's just like it's more information showing that this this new age, you know, I don't know, Gandhi, uh, this great defender of of peace and world order is maybe not all he's cracked up to be. Mm hmm. Well, it's it's not only that, it's just like the U.S. style of imperialism. It's like, go into a place and start paying people off, right? It's not, that's different from the British style, where they sent, like, actual British people to run shit in different parts of the world. The U.S. just, like, outsources it to local assholes who are willing to, who are corrupt enough to work with them. And, yeah, guess what happens? They're fucking so corrupt, they don't get anything done for anybody, you know? <laughs> it's like you, you get the worst assholes in power. Like, it, it, they did the same thing in Afghanistan, where working with, like, the worst warlords, the biggest pieces of shit, those were the guys who were willing to work with the U.S. And they mm-hmm. did, and they got power, and they were made the country worse as a, as a result, you know? And the U.S. stands there with this dick in its hand, like, we didn't mean to. Oh, we wanted to make things but better. They increased like, heroin production by over a thousand percent, you know, so. So I guess, the, yeah, there's a fentanyl <laughs> crisis. Like, where does that shit come, you know? I mean, fentanyl is, like, synthetic, but it's like, uh, uh, yeah, they, I'm sure, like, more. I don't know. I don't know how the hell fentanyl is made. To be honest, like, do you need access to any opioids to make it, or can you just make it? With no, it? it's completely synthesized. But you know, the opioid crisis but, that existed before fentanyl was uh, a real problem. I don't know where you know uh, Sackler Pharma or the Sackler family's pharmaceutical company was getting their opium from, but it is interesting that after the U.S. Uh, has this war and increases opium production in Afghanistan by over a thousand percent that all of a sudden the U.S. has this huge opium crisis that, uh, you know. Crisis? What crisis? Business is booming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, also, uh, you know, it looks like the U.S. has his dick in his hand. (laughs) I guess the U.S. is a guy here. 
Um, <laughs> Obviously. Stand, yeah, standing there with a the dick in his hand. Uh, <laughs> if you presume that the goal is to, you know, establish democracy or something. But if the goal is uh, for a few folks to uh, wet their beaks, then they're doing, <laughs> you know, they're, they're succeeding pretty well, you know. Some very moist beaks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... We're going to read, uh, I, I'm going to read a bit of, of the, the manifesto. We're, this manifesto is not actually really long enough to justify, like, not reading the whole thing. So, um, so he next goes on to say, uh, you know, many say, but what can we do? The companies hold the copyrights. They make enormous amounts of money by charging for access, and it's perfectly legal. There's nothing we can do to stop them. But there is something we can, something that's already being done. We can fight back. Those with access to these resources, students, librarians, scientists, uh, you've been given a privilege. Here's by, you know, Air National Guardsman uh, Jack Tahara or whatever, you've been given a privilege. You get to feed at this banquet of knowledge while the rest of the world is locked out. Uh, but you need not, indeed morally, you cannot keep this privilege for yourselves. You have a duty to share it with the world. And you have trading passwords with colleagues, filing download requests for friends. Uh, you know, sending shit to your uh, racist buddies on Discord. Uh, <laughs> Share Netflix passwords. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's uh, way ahead of you, Aaron. I mean, people are catching on. Don't yeah, worry. Losmovies yeah. dot com. Uh, anyway. uh, meanwhile, those who have been locked out are not standing idly by. Uh, you've been sneaking through holes and climbing over fences liberating the information locked up by the publishers and sharing them with your friends. But all of this action goes on in the dark, hidden underground. It's called stealing or piracy, as if sharing a wealth of knowledge were the moral equivalent of plundering a ship and murdering its crew. But sharing is not immoral. It's a moral imperative. Only those blinded by greed would refuse to let a friend make a copy. So He goes on to say... Large corporations, of course, are blinded by greed. The laws under which they operate require it. Their shareholders would revolt at anything else. And the politicians they have bought off back them, passing laws giving them the exclusive power to decide who can make copies. I can't tell if he's looking at things systematically here or not. You know, like... When he says corporations are blinded by greed, he turns like corporate behavior into a like a moral choice, like as if it's like as if there's a choice to not act greedy. Like that's the whole fucking point of its existence. It's not uh, mm-hmm. corporations are kind of like greed incarnate, if you want to say. There's and they're sy- systemically required to act in a way that we identify as greedy. Uh, and what he says says about laws and shareholders are true laws, shareholders, politicians are true. And he's like, he's getting at a systemic thing, but he's not, you know, he's always just not quite there. I feel like I'm saying the same stuff that I said in the GNU manifesto. I think it's him being implicit about that sort of uh, systemic problem without being, you know, explicitly stating it because explicitly stating that this is the nature of capitalism is that greed is the moral imperative grow or die, mm-hmm. uh, like that is probably off-putting to people who aren't, you know, died in the wool fucking lefties. 
Um, mm. And I, I think that keeping it vague and, you know, it's just like Tucker Carlson rants about the elites. You know, he's like some heir to some a bunch of money and gets paid millions of dollars to go say nonsense on television. Um, but he can still, you know, talk shit about elites. And so mm. I think by just containing it to keeping it vague and just pointing out corporations are bad, you know, only the most, you know, died in the wool corporatist is going to say, no, but corporations are good. I think most poor people or middle-class people would be like, no, corporations are pretty shit. Mm -hmm. Mm. By the way, I, I, I do think it's, there's something funny about like Tucker Carlson being an elite and then also like all his money coming from TV dinners. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Swanson, uh, right? Yeah. Swanson's TV dinners. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like he, but he is, he is obviously an, an, an elite in like a, a million different ways. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, only elites can rock bow ties like that motherfucker, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's his whole, his whole fucking aesthetic is being an elite. <laughs> um, but uh, so the, the the manifesto goes on. There's no. Uh, so this is it's actually the part that we kind of were discussing earlier. And I know, John, this kind of like struck you. Uh, there's no justice in following unjust laws. It's time to come into the light and in the grand tradition of civil disobedience, declare our opposition to this private theft of public culture, um, so jo I guess John, you 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 found that to be, even if not necessarily new, like uh, relatively important. I mean, like in combination with his calls to with his call to action, like just that there's no justice in following unjust laws. Um, you know, you know, let's just go to Martin Luther King in his um, letter from a Birmingham jail. He says, one has not only the legal but moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Right. And like I said, Aquinas and basically every moral philosopher, uh, you know, other than the nihilists, have some version of this kind of um, formulation that. Laws are only should only be followed when laws are good. Now, you all can right, all right, all right. Dumbasses advocate part two. Uh, libertarians say taxation is theft. So if I'm not paying my taxes, I'm resisting an unjust law. What do you say to that? Well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> if, if you're a libertarian and you don't want to pay taxes, then you have to live somewhere that gets no benefit from any sort of tax infrastructure or any sort of infrastructure that benefits from taxation. Right. Like if you want to go and pull a fucking Ted Kaczynski to come back to Uncle Ted and live in a fucking wood shack that you built yourself. Right. Uh, without any public plumbing, whatever, and you want to be born there, raised there, and only have access to the things that your parents paid for and have no access to any community good, then sure, taxation is theft and, and it's good to not pay your taxes. But just from being born into this society, you've already 
taken benefits from that taxation. So, mm -hmm. like, it, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's that social contract theory. Yeah, you never signed the contract, but you're kind of involved <laughs> in the contract, right? Like, I'm that, not that's saying... Also like that's also how like capitalism works. Like they got into a war with the place they conquer it. And then they're like, you're going to help, help us pay the war debt of the thing that <laughs> just, we beat you. And you're going to pay for that war. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, uh, it's like, yeah, th that's how everything works. You're just, you didn't, you didn't want this fucking contract, but now it's just like, uh, uh, uh it seems like social contract, uh, and imperialism work the same way. <laughs> and I mean, going back to the libertarian thing, right? Like, I mean, like, I think, at least for me, um, like the best formulation of this just law thing is Kant's critical imperative, right? Like, um, or categorical imperative, excuse me. Like, you have to be able to will what you think, as, for what you want to be moral, you have to be able to will it to be done by everybody in any situation, right? Mm -hmm. And to me that kind of excludes these libertarian people because they only think of themselves. This is why they're libertarians. It's not like the whole like right libertarian movement is a growth out of neoliberal capitalism where this emphasis on the ego and the self has just like devoured itself. And they think that they're this entity like, unto themselves it's like building an island out in the ocean and you're a sovereign nation uh kind of thing and if all people can't do what you're going to do then it's probably not a moral thing the, and yeah and they're kind and they're kind of blind to how dependent they are on other things you know it is this illusion of the individual that blinds people to interdependence like we all need each other and they get everything from other people, less fortunate people, and they feel like they're standing on their own two feet when they're not. I mean, everybody thinks that they're, you know, some Wild West cowboy motherfucker who went and got free <laughs> land from uh, the Homestead Act, right, mm -hmm. which is not individualism. That's government, like, handout. Um, you <laughs> yeah, know, but the good kind. All you have to do is assassinate <laughs> as many fucking natives as you can to keep your land. Um, you know, so it's like this rugged individualist myth that is so beloved in American society mixed with this neoliberal, oh, well, the state can't hold your hand and lead you through everything. And you have to, you know, be an entrepreneur and like fucking remodel a house and get rich or some bullshit or buy crypto or whatever whatever formulation mm. the myth takes at any given state and time, like libertarians run with that, like that kernel of, uh, propaganda without any in-depth thought. And most of the people who are big in the libertarian circle are people who are quite wealthy, you know, other than just like the gun toting weirdos who live out in the woods who just want to be able to do whatever they want to do. But like most of the people who push that politics in the mainstream, like the Koch, bro the Koch brothers, um, well, Koch brother, uh, now, uh, like, <laughs> RIP. Uh, 
Exactly. <laughs> Rest in piss, you piece of shit. Um. <laughs> uh, you, you might be forgetting about some of the less powerful libertarians, and those are uh, high school kids. I feel like you get a lot of libertarians <laughs> in high school. Like, it just yeah. like, I mean, I think I was basically a libertarian in high school. You just get sick of your parents' shit, and you're like, yeah, I, I, fuck, fuck these rules, you know? Uh, mm. We shouldn't have to do it. We shouldn't have any responsibility to anybody. I mean, but see, there, there's a, well... The responsibility to anybody, that's that's so, like I'm what you call like a socialist or a libertarian socialist. Right. Like I, I do think that. There's value in in. Opposing hierarchies. Um, yeah. However, my reading of libertarian socialism is not so much about the individual, but that everybody benefits more um by working together uh without this top-down power structure um and i think the right libertarians don't have a problem with the top-down power structure so long as they're not the bottom rung of that power structure turn me loose set me free somewhere in the middle of montana Give me all I've got coming to me And keep your retirement And your so-called social security Big city, turn me loose and set me free All right, so let's continue with the the manifesto Because uh, we're almost to the end of it here Um, He says, we need to take information wherever it is stored, make our copies, and share them with the world. We need to take stuff that's out of copyright and add it to the archive. We need to buy secret databases and put them on the web. We need to download scientific journals and upload them to file sharing networks. We need to fight for guerrilla open access. You can understand why uh, the federal government would have had a pretty easy time making a case against them uh, based on what he put in this thing. He wrote his indictment for them, right? Yeah, yeah that's it. He just admitted it in advance. Yeah. <laughs> There's one quote that I heard him say in an interview that I think kind of talks to what could be a problem that arises if people took uh took this guerrilla open access manifesto to its logical ends. And he says, in a world where everyone can broadcast, how can you determine what is good? Um, And it's like, just because all this information is out there doesn't necessarily, you know, not every academic paper is good. Just because it's Mm -hmm. peer reviewed doesn't mean that it holds weight or that it's true or whatever. Um, and like, he wasn't talking about this. This quote isn't from talking about the gorilla open access manifesto, but it, it's something that I think goes back to this kind of communitarian kind of greater good overall morality thing that, that he's writing this manifesto um this kind of space that he's writing the manifesto in is that even though like this is just the first step, I think is how I take it when I include this quote, like 
Mm-hmm. This is something that's necessary, but it's not su- sufficient. I think uh, we really just we've come nearly to the end of the uh, of the manifesto, um, which concludes uh, with enough of us around the world will not just send a strong message opposing the private privatization of knowledge will make it a thing of the past. Will you join us? Question mark. Aaron Swartz, July 2008, uh, Ramo, Italy. Uh, so, uh, wrote it from wrote it from Italy. Um, when, oh, he, when he was when he funny. was like, uh, I mean, he was 21, I think, 21 years old. I mean, more impactful than anything I wrote at 21. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah we talked about like Aaron Schwartz. Not you know, he wants people to act. But he wants them to act like kind of individually. He doesn't have any kind of collective vision. He doesn't have a collective identity that he's asking anyone to sign on to, you know? Um, Or do you see that? Am I wrong in that? I mean, um, we all... Go ahead. Well, I mean, he he is asking for people collectively to uh, rebel. But 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 like you said, there's not really a positive... Yeah. So was Ted Kaczynski, but Ted Kaczynski recognized that he's like, yeah, we need collective action in order to rebel, which he was trying to resist. You know, he didn't, he had that weird inner tension. I, I just mean, he, he, yeah, he's asking people to do things collectively, but there's no collective identity. He's not like, okay, once you start doing this, you're a socialist, you're a communist, right? Like you're mm-hmm. a like a something this makes you a something an open sourcist like i don't know what the hell yep. you become so yeah but, you're I mean, you're all you're always looking for a club to join uh, <laughs> <laughs> club manifesto baby uh, yeah i mean yeah i started i helped start one i did <laughs> i mean like to me just because it's not explicitly collectivist to me it is an open call to access like it or an open call to action about open access like um and he does say like everybody who has access like everybody who is who has access to this information is a member of the collective that he's trying to speak to right um and i think i think his i really think that there's like a weird struggle or like i think He's very idealistic without maybe having much ideology. And I think that's maybe the tension that Sos keeps running up against is that this is very idealistic in tone and in in the call for action, but there's no concrete ideology. And Sos can see this ideology kind of feeding both positive or negative ideologies. Mm-hmm. It seems like you're d- advocating for a dumbass named Sos, John. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was going to try to gang up on you, but it seems like you need more help than. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, he. I I think there's a little bit like what I read into his writing is is a little bit of like magical thinking that that sort of if we just allow if there's just this like free access to everything there's kind of like a just a magical uh positive thing that will happen where we will just uh form a better society based on 
uh, access to all this information. Um, and that may be where I like kind of depart from them uh, a bit too, because uh, I mean, we're talking about access to scientific research off the, like that's what he specifically refers to a lot as scientific research. And obviously there's like value to scientific research, but it's not necessarily, uh, it, it, it's valuable depending on how it's used. It's not as though it's uh, universally good or bad or whatever. Uh, it the the fact that everyone has access to it doesn't mean that all of a sudden all the all the forces that lead to uh, bad outcomes uh, have have uh, disappeared. Uh, they're still present. The same the same uh, capitalist forces that are uh, chewing up all of our resources now and cranking out misery uh, surely would be able to do the same with open access to all the scientific research. Anyway, that's uh, th that's maybe my issue with him not having an ideology, as you're saying, John. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's exactly like that's kind of this same tension that I see is he definitely has this, you know, tech bro-y, um, maybe overly simplified view of how his app or his manifesto is going to change the world for the good, right? Like it's and maybe this is like i'm not saying university is great for everything but maybe he would have been a little bit wider red had he stayed in university and you know gotten a little more of an ideological or ideal yeah ideological grounding um mm -hmm. it, 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 i'm not saying uh again it, it i think that this is a necessary step but it's definitely not a sufficient step and it's also the reason why like I wouldn't necessarily I wouldn't categorize Schwartz as revolutionary like I think maybe like trying to liberate that information could be construed as a liber or a revolutionary act but mm -hmm. in general apart from throwing gorilla into the name of his manifesto like mm -hmm. it, it's kind of like you know and killing himself to not have to be declared guilty or admit that he was guilty uh, if that's why he killed himself uh, like those maybe you could construe as revolutionary but he's definitely still seeped in this like kind of liberal ideology that he doesn't seem to quite be able to escape mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. I, that yeah I think that's uh, that's fair yeah he's not He's really not a revolutionary in, in that in that sense, uh, but you know he was he was 21 at the time he wrote this, uh, and uh, you know my some things might have changed had he had he lived a, a bit longer. Um, yeah, I'm, I think, not, I'm not trying to talk shit on the guy. Like, no, no, I I, <laughs> I I'm just uh, trying to qualify some yeah. of what I said as well, but uh, I think we've we've reached the end of the manifesto. We've done considerably less shitting on SOS than we originally planned. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I guess we'll have to save for the next time. Um, so, uh, John... I'm ready. Any, anytime you want to you bring it, I'm ready. <laughs> John, uh, John, thank you for uh, for joining us. Uh, you, got, uh, you got anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah, keep listening to Club Manifesto, uh, um, <laughs> and right. other than that, uh, fight the power. 
Nice. Yes. <laughs> and if uh, that's uh, you know, uh, uh, while well, speaking to Club Manifesto, uh, please email us at clubmanifesto420 at gmail dot com. There's an email I gotta get to. I apologize <laughs> to the listener who uh, emailed us quite a while ago, and I uh, we we recently seen it. I haven't checked the account in a while, but uh, yeah, we took a month. Uh, we took a month to check the email. Then when we did, we're like, oh shit, there's an email. And then now we spent about three weeks being like, oh, somebody's got to respond to that email. Yeah, and and as promised, though, in classic club manifesto <laughs> fashion, but uh, send Hence us the four twenty. In the email address. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that 420 is not there for, uh, you know, just aesthetics. <laughs> yeah. It's an invitation uh, and a warning. Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, you know, feel free to uh, review the show on uh, your your podcast app of, of choice. But uh, that's, yes. that's it uh, for today. And uh, as friend of the podcast, Barbara Walters <laughs> would say, we're in touch, so you be in touch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I just really wanted to quote Barbara Walters. <laughs> Baba Wawa? <laughs> <laughs>